Hey, how are y'all doing? Jerry's good. That's good. Thanks, Jerry. Hey, we're in Romans, Romans 11. Um, we're actually going to, so go ahead and open to Romans. Uh, we're actually going to start in chapter 9, though, for just a little bit. I'm going to take us back to chapter 9. So we've been in this section, 9 through 11, uh, since the beginning of this semester, and tonight it's finally going to end. Um, and we're going to move to chapter 12. <clears throat> uh, tonight, just so you know, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to preach a shorter sermon, and we are going to have a very purposeful time of application afterwards. Uh, last week, some of y'all weren't here, but I had people pray for each other. Um, and we're going to do something like that at the end, and I want to allow time for that at the end. I think I'm probably going to do that in all my sermons from now on. Uh, that it'll be shorter, uh, which some of y'all are probably thankful for. And then I want to have a time of purposeful application uh, because I feel like application is probably one of the most important parts, if not the most important part. Uh, Knowledge is useless without you applying it. I mean, it's just worthless. Uh, You have to apply it. And so I want to give you a time to do that, a space to do that, and also kind of want to push you so that it causes you to do that. it might make you a little uncomfortable, but it's going to be good for us. Um, yeah, chapter 9. Chapter 9, Romans. And then we'll, we'll jump to, uh, back to 11, which is our main passage for tonight. Um, so... Actually, let me sum up before we get to nine. So Paul has just laid out God's salvation plan for man. He's laid out our brokenness. He's laid out our need. He's laid out the uselessness of the law in the end. Uh, And he has declared that we are saved by faith and faith alone. And then he has just like preached in chapter eight, this incredible thing, talking about how, you know, what can separate us from the love of God? You know, nothing nothing and that's how he ends chapter 8 and it's just like this beautiful like crescendo and you would think that he's about to okay now you've just laid out Christian theology in a nutshell and now you're going to give us some good application you're going to give us you know hey pursue this don't pursue that you know do this and that and he doesn't he doesn't he has more to go on and it's connected but he has more. He's actually not done yet laying things out, and he is in anguish. He is, in, he is quite upset. Let's look. Verse 1, chapter 9, starting there. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the first four verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. So it's, he's had to clarify before he makes this statement that he's not lying. So he's about to say something a little crazy. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So Paul... Paul has just said something absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. He says, and he has to clarify that he's not lying, he says that he wants to be 
be separated from God for his fellow Jews. Like separated, like accursed is what he says. And I take that to mean like forever, like in hell, uh, without God, so that all the Jews will believe. And I'm like, no way. That's crazy. That's a crazy statement. I don't feel that way about anyone. I don't. There's no way. Absolutely no way. I couldn't do that for anyone. Not even my own family. I couldn't. I could maybe, I could say that I could want to you know, die for my, you know, family. But this, like hell forever, a curse separated from God forever, like that is intense. Um, and again, I, I say I would die for my family. Hopefully I would. I would die for some of you. Uh, not all of you, but some of you. Um, you know who you are. Um, but my, my point is, like, Paul is incredibly upset. He's incredibly upset, and I believe him when he says this. He says, he makes another weird statement. He says, the Holy Spirit bears me witness according to my conscience. I'm like, what does that even mean? It's like he, he pulls the Holy Spirit in and says, well, he's, he can bear me witness to my conscience. Like, I really mean this. And this is what he's about to get into, 9 through 11. Where we've we been all, this, all semester is addressing what about the Jews? Because the Jews, by and large, have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Um, and we've been working up and working up and working up. And tonight, we're here. Chapter 11. He's going to answer it, kind of. Uh, it's going to be a little difficult. Um, <clears throat> so he answers that question. Uh, when we read chapter 11, um, you're going to end up, he's going to answer that question, but you're going to end up with other questions that I don't have answers to, just so you know. But I'm going to try and stick with this, because that is the purpose of why he is writing in this section. I mean, one of the major, maybe the major reasons he's writing the whole letter is to address what about the Jews. So the other reason he's writing, there is another reason. It's not, I wouldn't call it secondary, but another major reason he's writing chapters 9 through 11 is, uh, uh, to put it simply, Gentile arrogance. Uh, if you remember the beginning of last semester, I talked about the reason <coughs> Paul, excuse me, Paul wrote this letter, or part of it, I believe, is that there is disharmony amongst Jewish Christians in this church and Gentile Christians. And that's going to become very evident when we read 11. I want you to look for it. It'll become very evident, quite obvious. Um, and they have become arrogant, uh, believing that they are greater. Uh, and that's, that's something he's going to address as well. Those are the two main reasons. So there's going to be a bunch of stuff you see, stuff that you have questions about, and I'm probably not going to answer that. I'm going to try and answer and stick with and talk with the reasons Paul is writing. Um, just a, a disclaimer. Um, yeah, you'll see. Um, I'm, only, I'm going to read through the whole chapter, and then I'm going to try and slowly bring us through in hopefully better, better English than Paul uses. He's tough to read sometimes, and I'm going to try and break it down piece by piece, his answer just so you know. And this is a very difficult text. Uh, the Apostle Peter, in his second letter, says, he, he says, Paul's writings are sometimes very difficult to understand. I mean, the Apostle Peter says that, and I consider this one of those. It's very difficult. And so bear with me and just understand that there are unresolved questions here for me and for, I mean, most of Christian society. Uh, so let me read this. I'm going to try and read it slow. And I'm going to read the, the whole thing. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer 
will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that, they, that he may have mercy on all. O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's answer, it's a little complicated. Um, It's a little complicated. I'm going to walk us through it again. Walk us through it again. So his short answer at first is to are the Gentiles, excuse me, uh, basically is God faithful? Has God rejected the Israelites? His short answer is no, by no means. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is what he says. I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says there is a remnant this small group of people who are currently saved at that time who are Jewish, that God has called to himself. He's called to himself, and he compares. It's not the first time God has done this. There, the entire nation of Israel is worshiping Baal, and it's a similar circumstance. And the prophet cries out and says, this is ridiculous. Everyone, everyone else has turned but me, and they seek to kill me. And God says, I've saved 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So this isn't the first time that it's happened. And so that doesn't quite answer the question because the overarching question isn't just, I very much simplified it earlier, what about the Jews? It is uh, underneath, is God faithful? That's the real question underneath that. Is God faithful and good? Particularly in saving Israel. Will he do that? Has he just left them? And he, Paul has this way of writing where he just asks questions that he knows that they're asking. Um, And so their response is, their response is, okay, so Israel failed, and there's this remnant. So why did they fail? They failed just to fail? God hardened them just to harden them? Why did he do that? And he says, no, no. He didn't just do it just to do it. There's a reason. He did that so that the Gentiles may come in. Without the Jews rejecting Jesus, you and I, I mean, what would we have had? What would we have had? And that was God's plan the entire time, that Jesus would die, that they would reject Jesus, and that he would go to the cross and die for all of us. That was the plan. It wasn't a surprise at all. That was the plan. So, 
they ask. Okay, so that's the plan. Um, so that they stumble that they might fall. He says, he says, no, by no means. Um, and then he, he says, he, he, he paints this picture of olive branches, of a tree being broken off. Uh, just kind of interesting. But, I mean, Israel, well, the promises from Abraham, Jesus, is supposed to be the, this root. And he paints this picture of the Jews being snapped off and Gentiles being replaced is what he paints next. He shows that. And it's like, okay, so it sounds like you've rejected them. You're breaking off these branches. You've rejected them. God has rejected them. And he says, no, don't be arrogant either. Um, That's in verse 18. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. And so their response is going to be, okay, all right, so... We were thinking now we're God's people, that, the, that God has left the Jews and has embraced the Gentiles. All these Gentiles are being saved. And he's rejected his people. It's what it still looks like in his explanation. And he says, no, don't be arrogant. Because he can change that in an instant. Like that. He says, don't be proud, but fear. You should be afraid. That's what he says. You should be afraid. Of God, because God can switch it in an instant, in an instant. And so they go, okay. okay. So they're reading this, and the thought is, okay, well, I'm not going to be arrogant as a Gentile. I'm not going to be arrogant, but He's still chosen the Gentiles. They say all the Gentiles are the ones believing, and Jews are not believing. They've rejected Jesus. And then he he does something weird. He says, I have a secret. To reveal to you, I have a mystery to reveal to you, um, which is just—it's it, a mystery. It's a mystery. Verse, uh, verse twenty-five. So they're still thinking, okay, don't be arrogant, but he's still breaking off these branches and replacing them with us. And he says, "Listen to this." He says, "Lest you be wise in your own sight." And that's what the Gentiles are thinking—that they're they're wise. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Paul reveals something that hasn't been, I don't think, shown anywhere in the New Testament like this. He reveals this mystery that God will save Israel in the end. That there's some sort of time of fullness where we end everyone in this room is Gentiles and we all, our time ends our time is right now and it comes to an end one day and when that happens the Jews come in, the Jews believe and those who he hardened he now softens and they believe him or they become jealous as he puts it and they come in and I don't know when that is or how that looks I don't have answers to that, but it happens. It happens. Our time ends. Our time ends. Uh, Which is weird to think about, but it'll happen one day. Um, It's happened to all these churches. All these churches that he's writing to, Colossae, Corinth, Galatia, those churches are gone. This church in Rome, they're gone. You go to, you know, church in Rome, 
and it's a it's a museum. It's they're museums. They're real nice too. Nice, nice looking uh, museums. It's really that way all throughout Europe. It's just museums. Um, there's a uh, our guy who's who's helping us with Poland, Jim Hale. He's he lives in Germany. He says there are uh, some amazing churches in Germany that are just like. He goes into them, and it's like a farmer's market. It's like people selling cheese in church, um, and they're not Christians at all. Uh, and it's, it's what happens. Um, and there's always a remnant, though. At least I believe that. There's always a remnant. Right now, there's a lot of house churches in England that are just, like, blowing up. No one's going to those old churches. They're, they're, they're house churches that are just amazing. And all these American pastors are like, what are you doing right? Let me see. Let me see what you're doing. And they're writing these books, and American pastors are just like eating it up, trying to figure out what to do. Because here, things are slowly starting to die. They're slowly starting to die here. Uh, it may not feel that way here. You probably don't feel that in this room, in this area. But as a whole, in America, um, Christianity is dying. I think the rate is something like 18% every year, just like this steady drop. A steady drop. That figure's maybe not right, but. This is steady dropping people who want to come to church, people who believe. Um, and it's weird to think about, and I, I say this, and I don't want this at all, but one day this room will be empty. One day this church will probably be a museum. The way that students go and see the stone fort that's empty, that's, you know, no one goes to it, but there's stuff you can go and see. It may be that way here one day. And I'm thinking... Centuries ahead, maybe, hopefully. Centuries ahead, but one day, my guess is that's going to happen. It's gonna, things are going to end here. Things will shift. And this happens all over the planet. God just moves in a people, and then he just moves in another people. and just keeps going one place to another until the, the Gentiles, their, their fullness is done. It's complete. And this happens everywhere. So, like, um, I don't know if you know, South Korea is just, like, crazy. Everyone's a Christian there now. It used to be no one 100 years ago, and now everyone's a Christian. Um, it's just like God has just blown it up. And now they're going to go through, like, in a cycle that we're in, which is we just have all these nominal Christians, and now they're going through that. We have all these Christians here who don't really, you know, they say yes with their mouth, and then with their actions they say no. Well, they just do Nothing. Very nominal. They don't make disciples. They don't preach the gospel. They don't pour into people. They have no disciples at all. They don't follow him. And so it's something that we're going through right now. And then in the end, not that I, not that I want that at all, but it'll be done. And God will be moving somewhere else. That's weird to think about. It's weird to think about. It'll, it'll happen one day. And we don't want to be arrogant and assume that God's just going to, you know, bless you know, Texas forever. Um, but I assume and hope there'd always be a remnant here. And that's kind of weird to think about too. That one day, maybe hundreds of years from now, someone in Texas will be praying, going, no one believes in you. What's going on? And then God says to him, I've kept 7,000 people here who have not bowed the knee to the American dream, who have not bowed the knee to money, to pleasure, to comfort. It's kind of weird to think about, but one day, that'll probably happen here. So, so God, in his wisdom, 
it's going to save Israel in the end. Our time will end, and it will switch again. And God will evidently save them by the droves. I hope so. I hope that's what it looks like. I hope it's everybody. But in the end, he will save everyone. He will save everyone. Um, so most of you, or not I say most of you, some of you right now are like, okay, you're talking about this, but I want to know, does God pick people who get saved and don't get saved? And you checked out a long time ago, and you're just like wondering the whole time, like, does he pick people or not? And what happens to people if he picks them and doesn't pick others? Um, and it's a question that I've asked myself for years, for years. And uh, I don't have a great answer for you. I don't. Um, it's something that has been conflicted in me for some time, for some time. Uh, and it's like, okay, so you harden these people, but what does that mean? What does that look like? What are the implications of that? And it's just so difficult. So God, excuse me, Paul is speaking on a macro scale. He's talking about nations and people, and he's not talking about individuals here. And he's not even trying to answer the question of how does God pick someone or anything like that. He's only asking, he's, only, he's trying to answer what about the Jews? And the answer is God is faithful. He will save them in the end. And so we all have these other questions that he's not, he's not exactly answering. And I know I say it's on like a macro scale that he's talking about nations, but how do you separate that from the individual? Because that means like millions of individuals were passed over. I don't have an answer for you for how that works. I have so many questions for Paul. Your questions right now are my questions too. Like how does that work? You know, were they hardened because of their unbelief? Uh, were they hardened temporarily and they can, you know, believe later? Uh, if you go back to, to Romans 8, he says those he foreknew, he predestined. So it's like, okay, so you foreknew that these Jews would reject Jesus? And I just have all these questions, all these questions. And then other, other passages that don't even, like, that mesh, that don't quite mesh with it, where, where Peter says that... Uh, I think Peter says that God's desire is for all to come to repentance. And Paul tells Timothy that he doesn't want anyone, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And it's like, wait a minute now, what's this? And it's like I'm trying to connect puzzles from different sets and it just doesn't work. Uh, and I'm sorry I don't have a, a great answer for you, but I don't think anyone really does. And that's why it's been talked about and debated and argued about for centuries and centuries. Um, and it's not something that Paul is trying to answer right here. But by and large, in the end, uh, God will save the Jews. So let me try and wrap up. So this is, this is part of the difficult part. How do I, I've been asking myself, how do I apply this passage to our lives? Because this is a first century question that most of you probably are not exactly interested in. Is anybody just like really wanting to know what happens with the Jews? Was that anybody? Kyle Shirley wanted to know. Someone else, they wanted to know. A few people, you want to know, okay. But most of you were just like, okay, that's neato, okay. You know, and you weren't exactly interested in it. But the themes of this stay the same. The themes of this and its application stay the same. The first one is... Don't be arrogant. 
Take the Gentile perspective. Don't be arrogant and assume on his graces. Don't assume anything. Peter, in that same letter, um, says that we are to make sure of our calling and election. We're to make sure of it. And so, so are you. And you don't do that by repeating a prayer. You don't do that by good works. You do that by completely pushing into the faith that God has given you and asking for more. Asking for more faith. So that is the first application, if that's you. The second one is that we see Jews in this passage, at this church, who are doubting God's faithfulness. Doubting God's faithfulness, his goodness. And that could be you too. And not over this situation, but it could be over any situation. It could be over something that's happened to you. I guess, my guess is most of you, when you doubt God, it's probably over your future is what it is. And it's the same for them. They're worried about the future of their nation, of their people. And you're worried about the future of, of you, whatever that is. We are very individualistic. We're not as worried about you know, our nation, our history, our people. Um, we're very individual and you're worried about yourself and that's okay but you need to have faith that in the end God is good he will be good to you in the end Um, and those are the two real applications from this I would say there's a third but it's indirect and I'm going to talk about it right now because I think maybe it fits a few of you Um, when I was a freshman in college in this room in the back right there this sermon would infuriate me. Um, Not because of something the pastor said, but because of the verses that I read where it's like, every time I came across like God choosing and not choosing and electing and not electing, it just drove me mad. It got me really upset. It got me really angry. Um, And our third application is if that's you, you need prayer for that. You need to pray over that. Um, Because I I think it's perfectly okay to question God, to want to understand, to want to know. I think that's perfectly okay. Um, what's not okay is the way that I did it and the way that maybe some, are you, some of you do it when you look at this passage, the way some of you all do it, which is in an angry fashion, in a fashion that demands answers. Um, and it doesn't work that way. You don't get to shake your fist at God and say, hey, tell me why you did it this way. You don't get to do that. You don't get to sing his praises, uh, you know, minutes ago for saving you and then angrily question the way in which he chooses to save you. You don't get to do that. And you won't get a chance. I used to think that I would have a chance, um, which is weird. But I used to think that the one day uh, when I'm before God, I'm going to be like, hey, why did you do it this way? Why do you do it this way? And that chance is never going to happen. It's never going to happen. When I'm there, um, I will either realize that I was a fool because I didn't even understand what I was reading or that I was a fool because I questioned God and I questioned his motives and the way he does things. Either way, it doesn't turn out well for me. Either way. And I won't have the opportunity. And I won't want it to be my guess. I'm in front of God himself I imagine I won't want to ask any questions like that. Why you do it this way? I won't want that at all. I think 
when we're there, we'll realize how small we are. We will realize just how small we are. And that, as Paul puts it, everything is for him, through him, and to him. And it's not about us. It's not about us at all. You and I are a very small part of God's salvation plan. This room, this area we're in, is a small part. God is saving people right now. He is calling the elect out right now. And people are believing here at this church, in this community. People are believing. And they are coming to him. They're coming to belief in Jesus. They're being saved. And he's doing it right now. So that's kind of my third application. If you're going through that, because you, your, your, your response needs to change. needs to change. And you need to be thankful for what God is doing, for what he is doing.